All right, you can open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 22. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you need one, you can grab one off the tables, uh, back at either one of the tables there. Um, it's on uh, page 16 in those Bibles from the welcome table. We're winding down the narrative of Abraham that we, we began back in chapter 12. Um, and, and last week when we were in chapter 21, I mentioned that Abraham's life has been full of trials and tests that have required him to, to wait upon God and to trust God to keep his promises. And here in chapter 22, Abraham is going to face the biggest test of faith that he's ever faced in his whole life. At the beginning of God's relationship with Abraham, back in chapter 12, God told Abraham to give up his past and trust him and go, right? And now God will tell Abraham to let go of his future and the promises, to trust God with the promises that he's given to him. But Abraham's test of faith is not just for Abraham. It's for all of us today. We're going to see what real faith looks like and be challenged to see then if our own faith passes the test. So I know I asked if you like to take tests, but God's word is going to test us this morning. Are you ready? I want to pray so that we are. I know I just did, but it's never, it's never, uh, it's never not good to pray, right? Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, again, you would guide our hearts, you would teach us, you would correct us, and rebuke us, and train us, and encourage us, and equip us for every good work as we do those, not to earn salvation, but because you have saved us through your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What is faith? I don't want an answer out loud. I just want you to think about that for a minute. How do you know the difference between authentic faith and faith that is false, that may look pretty on the outside but has no substance on the inside? This morning, as we go through Genesis chapter 22, we're going to see this, that real faith is revealed faith. Unless it's shown, faith can't be proven, and it can't be shown unless it's tested. So today, we're going to see Abraham's faith get tested like it's never been tested before, and the result will not only prove that Abraham's faith is real, but, but that God, the God in whom he trusts, in whom his faith rests upon, is really trustworthy, okay? So we're going to dig in. Let's look at the test. Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. After these things, the events of chapter 21, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains and I will, that I will tell you about. Now, this is the first time that scripture specifically mentions that God tested someone. It's the first time we see that word test in scripture. But before we get into the details here, we need to make something really clear. God tests people, but God never tempts people. Okay? There's a difference, and it's a really important one that we need to make so that we don't get confused as we go through this. To tempt someone is to entice that person to sin. But we know from what we've seen already in Genesis and what we'll see all the way through Scripture, because God is unchanging, is that 
God is neither the author of evil nor does he ever approve of it. Jesus' brother James, we just read in James for our prayer time. He makes this clear in, in his New Testament letter. James 1, 12 and 13, a little further down than what we read a minute ago. Blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. James says that our trials are tests from God, not temptation from God. God tests us in order to show that our faith is either genuine or artificial. And when we're faced with a test of faith, it requires us to go beyond just saying that we believe him. We have to show that we believe him. And that's the purpose of the test that God gave to Abraham here. So what was the test? Verse 2. God told Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, we hear that, and, and if we find that to be this shocking request, and we should, right? He's telling him to go sacrifice his son. If we find that shocking, then the original audience of Genesis would have found that even more shocking because Moses was the primary author of the first five books of the Bible, which includes Genesis. And most likely his primary audience was the, the wilderness generation, okay? If you go to the end of Deuteronomy and, and, and into the book of, of Joshua, it's that generation that's getting ready. They, they've, they've survived the wilderness wanderings, the 40 years in the wilderness after God brought the people out of Egypt and they rebelled against him and, and he judged an entire generation, said, you won't enter my rest. They don't get to promised land. Now this is all their children, and they're getting ready, and Moses is transitioning over to Joshua as leader, and they're getting ready to go into the promised land with Joshua. This is the generation. But when God brought them out of Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai and gave them uh, the law through Moses, right? That law includes the Ten Commandments and, and several hundred other laws that would govern how they should live as God's covenant people, one of those laws strictly forbade human sacrifice. And so when the Israelites who had this law would have heard God's request here to Abraham, they would have been taken aback by this, right? That's why it's important that Moses made it clear in verse 1 that God was testing Abraham. He's not tempting him to sin. He's testing him. Remember, we've heard this. We need to say this over and over and over. God is good and God does good. And he's never not good. God is good and God does good and he's never not good. Even though Abraham didn't have the laws that God gave to the Israelites later, God is never, was never going to actually let Abraham sacrifice Isaac. God is testing Abraham's faith, not tempting Abraham to sin. And this was the ultimate test of faith for Abraham. There's no greater demand that God could have placed on him. No greater demand. Hey, remember that son that I promised to give you? I want you to give him back. Notice how God referred to Isaac in verse 2. Called, he called him Abraham's only son. What about Ishmael? He's his son too, right? But in chapter 21, we saw this last week. 
Ishmael was sent away because Isaac was the only son of the promise, the one through whom Abraham's descendants would be traced and through whom God's covenant promises would be passed on to those descendants. Verse 2 is also the first time the word love is used in Scripture. Now, it doesn't mean that nobody loved anybody else in the, in the first 21 chapters of, of Genesis, right? But it's important here. It's specifically used to emphasize just how precious Isaac was to Abraham. Abraham had waited 25 years at least for God to give him the son that he promised to give him. Isaac, every time Abraham looked at Isaac, talked to Isaac, held Isaac in his arms, watched him grow up, every time Abraham beheld Isaac, he was looking at a living, breathing fulfilled promise of God, evidence of God's faithfulness to him over all these years of waiting. Abraham loved Isaac dearly, but the test was designed to prove that Abraham loved God more as much as he loved his his son. He loved God more. A burnt offering was one where the entire sacrifice was completely consumed by fire as this act of total commitment to God. And in the midst of that, it also atoned for the sin of the one who offered the sacrifice. God knew this was a test. We know this is a test. Abraham doesn't have a clue. We need to understand that. We're getting, we're privy to information Abraham doesn't have as we go through this this story. Abraham only had God's instructions with the expectation that he would follow them. Will he? Let's look at his response. Verse 3. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship, and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. You feel the tension building here as the story gets drawn out with all of these little details, right? I, I like to just, listen, if you're gonna tell me some news, tell me the news and then tell me the story behind the news, okay? Don't tell me the story and then give me the news. I'm really impatient. I don't know how you are in that, but I would rather just say, uh, so Abraham got up and went to Moriah with Isaac, right? But it doesn't do that. It draws out. He draws out all of these agonizing steps. We're given in, in more detail than we really need. Abraham got up early in the morning, and then he saddled his donkey, and then he took two of his male servants and told them they needed to come with him and Isaac. And then he split the wood for the, for the burnt offering. And then he set out to go to the place God had told him about. In all this detail, do you know what we're not told? We're not told what Abraham was thinking. We're not told how he was feeling in the midst of all of this. Maybe as he got up early in the morning, it drew his mind back to waking up in the middle of the night with the cries of his newborn son. As he saddled his donkey, maybe he thought about that first time that God had called him and told him to leave his homeland and and go to the land that God would show him. 
Maybe while he split the wood, it, it, it's possible that he was recalling the times that he taught his son, whom he loved, how to use tools and what it meant to worship the Lord. We get a great amount of detail about what Abraham was doing in these verses, but we get almost nothing about what he was thinking. And I say almost nothing because we do get a couple of hints here, even though we don't know exactly what was going through Abraham's mind in these moments. Verse 3 tells us that Abraham got up early in the morning. Yeah, that's a detail that sort of seems like it's unnecessary, but it's actually showing us something, that he wasted no time obeying God's word. He got up early. He didn't sleep in. He wasted no time obeying what God told him to do. Think about all the times that Abraham doubted or complained or questioned or argued after God told him what he needed to do, right? We can go through all of these, recall these events. In chapter 15, after God promised to be his shield and that his reward would be very great, what did Abraham say? Lord God, what can you give me since I'm childless? Look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Chapter 17, God said Sarah would give Abraham a son, and Abraham laughed in disbelief and argued, oh, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. In chapter 18, when God told Abraham that he was going to destroy Sodom in, in, in the city that Abraham's nephew lived, Abraham said to him, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Won't the, 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 the judge of all the earth do what is just? And let's not forget about the time that Abraham lied to Pharaoh and then again lied to Abimelech and told them both that Sarah was his sister in order to protect himself, even though God had promised to bless him and to give him offspring and land. Just last week in chapter 21, Moses noted how distressed Abraham was when God told him to send Hagar and Ishmael away. His track record's not great. And yet now, here he was. He'd already given up one son, and God was telling him to give up the other, to put to death the one and only son through whom God had promised to give Abraham offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. But when God told Abraham what to do this time, there was no doubting, there was no complaining, no questioning, no arguing from Abraham. There was only obedience, and it was without hesitation. But verse 5 gives us a hint that Abraham's obedience was an expression of his faith in God to keep his promise. Did you notice what he told the two young men when he, uh, who stayed with the donkey? You notice what he said to them? Stay here, and we'll go worship the Lord, and what? We will come back to you. We will come back to you. If Abraham sacrifices Isaac as a burnt offering, there's no we coming back. There's only me, as in Abraham without Isaac. But what does he say? We will come back to you. This is a confession of faith. Abraham was confident that both he and Isaac would return together Again, we're not told here in the text exactly what he was thinking in that moment. He didn't elaborate on that. But nonetheless, we get this clue that Abraham was confident that no matter what happened up on that mountain, God had promised to give him descendants through Isaac. And what did we learn last week? God does what he says. Right? God does what he says. 
And it's with this confidence in God that Abraham laid the wood for the burnt offering on his son, and he carried the fire and the knife in his own hands as the two of them trekked up this mountain together. Look at verse 7. And then Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham, and said, My father. And he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac was no longer a young child. The beginning of chapter 22 ties these events back into the events of chapter 21, but there's some time that's passed here, right? Isaac's probably a young teenager at this point. He's strong enough to carry this bundle of wood on his back. He's he's, uh, uh, smart enough, old enough to understand that they were missing the most vital thing needed for the burnt offering. The fire and the wood are here. But where is the lamb? Where's the lamb? And Abraham's answer once again reveals his confidence in and dependence upon the Lord. My son, God himself will provide the lamb. This is the only time Isaac talks in the whole narrative and it's this short exchange, but there's this sweetness here in spite of what's taking place. It begins with the words, my father from Isaac, And it ends with the words, my son, from Abraham. Abraham's obedience to God doesn't mean he's callous toward his son. We need to understand that. They're endeared to one another. God himself recognized that. Take your son, your only son, the one whom you love. They're going up this mountain together. And when Isaac expressed his confusion, his father reassured him that God was faithful to provide what they need. And that reassurance is meant for us too. Because unless we are callous and cold-hearted, we ought to feel the anguish and the tension that Abraham felt as he led his son, the one whom he loved, up the mountain to sacrifice him in obedience to the God he loved and trusted. Scripture doesn't tell us to pretend like things aren't real, like things aren't hard. But it does show us in the midst of that that God is trustworthy. Look at verse nine. When they arrived at the place that God had told them about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and he placed him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son again. This scene is being dragged out in this unbearable detail. Abraham built the altar, and then he arranged the wood, and then he bound his son, and then he placed him on the altar on top of the wood. He reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. If this were a movie, I'm sure you can picture this, all of this would be playing out in slow motion while heart-wrenching music narrated the scene for us. As Abraham bound his son with ropes, it would cut to this flashback of him wrapping his newborn son in fresh cloths. As he laid Isaac on the altar, we'd see another flashback of him laying his sleeping son in Sarah's arms. As Abraham raised the knife up over his head and closed his eyes, it would flash back to him raising the cup at the feast that he held for his son as he was weaned from his mother. And all the while, we'd be on the edge of our seats going, This isn't actually going to happen, right? God's going to stop him, right? This is a test, right? 
Look at verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. And then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. You ever wanted to get somebody's attention quickly? Just keep saying their name as fast and as many times as you can until they answer, right? That's what I do with my kids. That's what they do with me. The need to get Abraham's attention here in this moment is urgent, is it not? Abraham, Abraham, hold on. The knife is in his hand. He's about to sacrifice his only son with it. But in verse 1, we were told that God was testing Abraham. The purpose of this test was not for Abraham to sacrifice his son, but to prove his willingness to obey God no matter what the cost might be. And there was no greater expression of his willingness than for Abraham to reach out and take the knife in his hand to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham's faith was tested and it was proven to be genuine. He didn't just say that he believed God, he showed it. But God didn't need to know whether or not Abraham's faith was genuine. In verse 12, when the angel of the Lord said, now I know that you fear God, that doesn't mean that God learned something new here. That God was on the edge of his seat along with us in that moment. Remember, God is omniscient. He knows all things at all times and never needs to learn anything. Instead, this isn't this, this statement of like, oh, yeah, okay, I see now. This is a statement of evaluation. What God already knows, Abraham has now shown, and God is pointing that out. God's judgment was that Abraham had passed the test. Abraham did not sacrifice his trust in God for the sake of his son, and because of that, he did not have to sacrifice his son for the sake of showing his trust in God. He was willing. But the burnt offering still needed to be made. And so God himself provided the lamb for it, just as Abraham had trusted him to do so in verse 8. Abraham looked up, and he saw a ram caught in the thicket, and he offered the ram as the burnt offering in the place of his son. And in verse 14, we're given another one of God's names. We've seen a few of these now in Genesis. Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh. And it goes hand in hand with the name that we saw last week in chapter 21. Everlasting God. There, in 21, he was shown to be the God of the long term. The God over all things at all times. Here, he's shown to be the God of the short term. The God over anything at any time. God is the God of the grand scheme and of the minute details. He's the God over everything and over each thing. He's intimately acquainted with, and not just acquainted with, but intimately involved in every aspect of our lives as he works it all into his bigger plan. 
And after God provided a ram as a substitute for Isaac, he reaffirmed the promises of his bigger plan to Abraham. Look at verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn. This is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Abraham went back to his young men and they got up and went together to Beersheba and Abraham settled in Beersheba. God's promise to Abraham here is in two parts. Part one, Abraham will have many descendants. Part two, one of Abraham's descendants will bless the nations. You're going to have a lot of offspring, Abraham, and one of those, one of those will be the one through whom I fulfill all my promises to bring about blessing to the world. The Hebrew wording in verses 17 and 18 makes it clear that God's going from talking about multiple offspring that can't be counted to the one offspring in particular who will conquer his enemies and bring blessing to the nations. We know who that is, right? Jesus Remember what he said to Peter? I tell you, you're Peter. On this rock, I'll build my church. And the gates of Hades will not be able to overcome it. He will possess the gates of his enemies. What we just saw here in, in the end of chapter 22, this is a reiteration of the promise that God made to Abraham back in chapter 12 when he gave Abraham his first test. Genesis 12, one through three. The Lord said to Abram, it was before he got his name changed, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. When God first called Abraham, he told him to go to a place that he would show him. Abraham obeyed and, and, and God promised to bring blessing to him and through him. Now in the greatest test of his life, of his faith, God once again told Abraham to go to a place that he would show him. And Abraham obeyed once again, and once again, God promised to bring blessing to him and through him. And I love the way this story ends. Not a story. We just call it a story. This really happened. I love the way it ends. Back in verse five, Abraham told the two young servants that he and Isaac would return together, right? He says, we will come back to you. That's exactly what happened. Now, verse 19 only mentions Abraham, but it's implied that Isaac's with him. He's not gonna take him up, offer him to the Lord, have him be saved by God, and then just leave him there, right? Isaac's coming back down with him. The reason Abraham is mentioned here is because the focus is on him, it's on him and his proven faith. He and his son had gone up the mountain together because of his trust in the Lord, and now they would head back down the mountain and on back to Beersheba together because of his trust in the Lord. Abraham's test was not ultimately for God's benefit. It was for God's glory. 
but it wasn't ultimately for God's benefit in the sense that God needed to find out. Abraham's faith, Abraham's uh, test was for Abraham's benefit, and it was for ours. How else would we know what real faith is if we never get to see evidence of it? Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. During our prayer time, I read from James uh, chapter 1, the first couple verses, Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. How do we know that? because we've seen it lived out in the things that were written in the past. We are encouraged to endure with hope because we see Abraham enduring with hope. You should spend some time this week reading Hebrews chapter 11, known as the Hall of Faith. It defines faith in the first verse. It says, now faith is the reality of what's hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. The definition is useless unless we see it. Right, And the whole rest of chapter 11 is showing us what that definition means. He gives case after case after case, person after person after person, story after story after story of, of the old saints who trusted God. Their faith was shown. Listen to Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. By faith, Abraham... When he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will, take, will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. Doesn't Genesis 22, what we've just read, doesn't that show us what faith is? It doesn't just tell us what faith is. It shows us what faith is. Now, now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. My father, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb? My son, God himself will provide the lamb. Doesn't that help us understand real faith more than just telling us what faith is? Abraham's story is helpful for us when it feels like God's promises and his commands contradict each other, which they never actually do, by the way, because God is true, and he's good, and he never lies, and he's never not good. Abraham's story helps us to walk by faith and not by sight, to cling to the promise of eternal life, even as we die to ourselves in this world to suffer with Christ so that we might be glorified with him. Listen, our faith, like Abraham's, must be tested. It must be proven to be genuine. We don't simply declare that we, that we believe. We have to demonstrate it. Faith is not just something that we have. It's something that we exercise. James 2, 20 through 24. James is another one to, to go spend some time in. It says, Senseless person. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? And he goes back to Abraham. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? 
You see that faith was active together with his works, and by, his, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, James is not saying that Abraham earned his righteousness because he was willing to offer Isaac on the altar. James is not preaching a gospel of works here. He's saying that Abraham, what Abraham showed, or what Abraham did, showed that his faith was genuine. The works proved the faith that he had. They proved that, that he already had the righteousness through faith that chapter 15 told us about in Genesis. In other words, James says, Abraham believed God. His faith was real, and if you want proof, look at Genesis 22. He uses Abraham as an example to make his point that faith, real faith, is always revealed faith. It will always be shown by God-glorifying actions. And what Abraham's example shows us in Genesis 22 is that real faith is trust in the Lord at great personal cost, at all costs. God, has God ever asked you to offer him something or, or someone that was very near and dear to you? Not to sacrifice them in the way he called Abraham to sacrifice them, but to let go, to release to entrust them into his care, even if it seems like you might actually lose them? Is there anything or anyone that you love more than God? Listen, sin blinds us and we don't know what we don't know. 1 Peter 1, the testing of our faith, more valuable than gold. Gold is refined by fire. Why would we think we don't need to be refined? But our faith is producing in us the goal, the salvation of our souls. Abraham's example shows us that God is absolutely trustworthy. We've talked a lot about our faith, right? And if you've heard me preach once, you've heard me preach a thousand times. We are not the center. It's not about us. It's about God. We just sang that. Why should I gain from his reward? I can't give an answer. Right? But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. This is why God is trustworthy. Genesis 22 is one of the clearest pictures of the gospel in the Old Testament. God told Abraham to take his only son to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a sacrifice on one of the mountains that God would tell him about. Years later, that mountain would become the place where the temple was built in the city of Jerusalem. You can read about it in Chronicles. And year after year, with every sacrifice that was offered at the temple, the question would echo in the minds of the people of Israel, where is the lamb? Where is the one that would atone for our sins once and for all, we have to continue to kill these goats and bulls and animals, but we know from Hebrews the blood of goats and bulls cannot bring about the forgiveness of sin. Where is the lamb? 
That answer came from the mouth of John the Baptist. When he saw Jesus walking by and he said, look, there is the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Near the, the, the same place that Abraham offered up his one and only son to show his faith in the God he loved, God the Father offered up his one and only son to show his love to a world of faithless people. Isaac, as Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice on his back, so too did Christ carry the wood for the sacrifice on his back as he hiked up the hill of Golgotha to be crucified. But as Jesus hung on the cross, there was no one there to stay the Father's hand. No one to call his name out and say, stop. There was no... No, no, no ram caught in a thicket to take Christ's place. Why? Because Christ himself was the substitute. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, the substitute that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. Christ bore the righteous wrath of God in our place to make atonement for our sins once and for all and to bring us to God covered in his own righteousness so that no more sacrifice would ever be needed. God himself, Jehovah Jireh, provided the lamb. And on the third day, God raised his son from the dead so that all who have real faith in him can receive true eternal life. Unlike Isaac, Jesus knew what he was getting into because he willingly agreed to be our sacrifice in obedience to his father. The father offered his son and the son offered himself. Is that not the greatest display of love that we could ever see? Does that not make him worthy of our total trust and devotion, holding nothing back from the God who gave us himself? Is your faith in Christ? If not, my prayer is that this morning through the Spirit and the Word of God that you would see what you're sacrificing by putting your trust in someone or something other than him. None of those things, none of those people can give you eternal life or true joy or true peace or true hope. God himself has provided the Lamb. Why not believe that and put your faith in him? As God's people of faith, as the church of Christ, we have the joy of looking at Jesus and saying, the Lord has provided and the confidence to say that the Lord will provide and continue to do so because what God does, or, or because God says what God does, we can trust him to provide what we need even when we don't see it. In our times of testing, we must remember Christ's sacrifice and continue to walk by faith until he returns. And in his grace, God has not left us to walk alone. Amen? That's why we're here. That's why we, it's not just here that we gather, but that we, we engage in one another's lives. We walk through the tests and the trials together with one another. God has given us the encouragement of seeing the enduring faith, the real 
tested and proven faith of others, from those whose stories have been recorded in Scripture to those whose stories are being lived out alongside us. And guess what? He's put his Holy Spirit inside us to give us the desire and the ability to do what pleases him. Philippians tells us that. Real faith is revealed faith. It's proven through tests to show that our trust is in the Lord who provides. Genesis 22 doesn't just tell us what real faith is. It shows us. We don't see what's in Abraham's mind or heart, but we do see his actions, and they give proof of his faith. But even more so, they give proof that the God in whom Abraham's faith rests is trustworthy to provide all that Abraham needs And he's trustworthy to provide all that you and I need. Abraham's God is our God. Doesn't that blow your mind? It's like 4,000 years ago. Now we know why he's called the everlasting God in the last chapter. And the God that called Abraham is the God that calls us to trust him as Abraham did. And he graciously tests our faith so that we learn not to trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So no matter what tests of faith we encounter, whether they're small or large or seemingly unbearable, we can trust the God who tests us. That's so important. We can trust the God who tests us because he's already provided everything that we need to pass the test. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that our salvation is not dependent upon us. You, that you have shown us our need for him and that you've shown us how you have gloriously met that need in your own son, the one whom you love so that we could become children of God. We pray, Lord, as we are tested, that we remember that you are not tempting us, that it is not for your understanding, it's for our own good and your glory, and that we don't do it alone. You've given us your word, your spirit, and your church to endure the trials with joy so that we receive the crown of life, not because we've earned it, but because we've already been given it. Lord, help us to see and continue to see with faith even when we don't see what's actually going on in front of us. We love you and we pray all this in the name of the Lamb who was given, slain, and resurrected in our place, Jesus Christ. Amen.